Thanks for your flexibility. Thank you. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 tonight. Isaiah chapter 40. I'll be reading it all, so if you don't happen to bring a Bible, don't worry about it, because I'll be reading it for you. But if you have one, you can take a look there. I told you uh, last week and the week before, actually, that we've been looking forward to this particular series of chapters from 40 to the end of the book because for the first 39 chapters, we have pretty much been talking about judgment. God came to Isaiah and told him to tell your people, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them because of their idolatries, their wicked hearts, and they were wicked. Their priests were drunkards, the Bible says. They were worshiping false idols. They were doing so many despicable things, and so God finally drew a line and said, that's it, I've had enough, so I'm going to judge you, which God raised up the Assyrian army to uh, do its work of judgment, then later on, the Babylonian army that took them in three sieges and completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so tonight, we're looking at chapter 40, and the reason it's significant is because now we have finally passed the heaviness of the judgments, and we're looking far beyond into, primarily, into the millennium, into that last, uh, the, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Jesus is going to come. He's going to come at the second coming, and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. He's going to rule and reign, and it's going to be a blessed time. And so these last uh, 20 chapters are, uh, are looking forward to that wonderful time. And so I want to read just verse number one and then lead us in prayer. And if you've been with this study at all, you're going to recognize an immediate change from what we've been saying. Verse number one, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. We've not read about a whole lot of comfort for the first 39 chapters. And so this is a real breath of fresh air. Let's pray and ask God to meet with us tonight. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your goodness, your blessing. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Spirit of God, would you quicken our minds? Help us, Lord, to understand what you'd have for us tonight. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you take a note, Roman number one, God seeks to bring comfort to his people. Comfort, can you believe it? Finally, 39 chapters of no comfort, now there's comfort. I love it. Letter A, God's demeanor towards Judah changes. What a dramatic change in the nature of this introduction. Up until now, the basic theme of the book has been God's judgment upon his rebellious people of Judah. Both their immediate chastisements by Assyria and their future one during the tribulation is the main theme of the first 39 chapters. But this one opens the door to a merciful voice of blessing and encouragement. I much prefer blessing and encouragement to judgment. I much prefer my dad when I was growing up saying, let's go to the Dairy Queen and get an ice cream cone versus meet me in the back room. I much prefer that. And this is just incredible news for the people of Judah. Letter B. With a look past the judgment of the tribulation, the Lord encourages Israel. Verse 2. He says, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. With a look past their fierce judgments of Assyria 
and then Babylon, and eventually those incredible uh, judgments during the tribulation, the Lord now encourages Israel to be comforted as their warfare is over and her sin has finally been pardoned. The thought behind her sins receiving double likely means their judgment down through the years, along with God's chastening during the tribulation. Double judgment. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 18 reads, At first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land. They have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. Letter C. The Messiah's forerunner foretold. Now, it's incredible. Here we are in this book, primarily of judgment, and God gives, the, gives us verse 3, seemingly out of the blue. Verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And of course, this is referring to whom? John the Baptist, right. This is an obvious reference to the man who is leading the way for Christ. He's setting the stage, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. It was fulfilled as he laid the preparations for the coming of the Messiah. Matthew 3, 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in Matthew... It's gospel. It refers back to this passage in Isaiah. The highway being described may have a spiritual application, but other passages seem to support a major thoroughfare to Jerusalem for returning Jews during this time at the end of the tribulation. Isaiah 35, 8. And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness, the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not enter therein. The Lord is blessing Israel with a preview of his master plan to redeem Israel. Sadly, however, Israel rejected their coming Messiah. Letter D. The earth will be taken through some serious reconstruction. Verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. The coming of the Messiah is here foretold, though not his first coming to earth. This looks to the second coming of Christ, when he comes in glory. As the millennium begins, there will be a major topographical change in the earth. Now, I used to believe that this topographical change, talking about this, that was referred to here, was a global change. I don't think it has to be, nor do I think it is. I think it has to do with that area around Jerusalem. Every valley shall be exalted. So here we go. Every valley exalted, every hill made low. Why? Because it's going to make a plain surface, a flat surface. Ezekiel 45 mentions a flat surface, a plain surface that is 50 miles square upon which the temple, the millennial temple, will be rebuilt, will be built. The land all around will be turned into a plain with no mountains or valleys. These major changes will set the stage for the takeover by King Jesus. Zechariah 14.10, all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Remon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place. 
from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress. So it's actually giving borders for where this plain is going to be, that the temple is going to be built. Revelation 16, 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. One of the purposes of the earthquake is to shake down the mountains and to fill in the valleys. Why? To make this plain. Letter E. The Messiah will return to earth in great power and glory. Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. When Jesus returns, he will come in all his glory for all the world to see. This spectacular event will be at the conclusion of the tribulation, when Christ will obliterate the wicked on earth and set up his millennial reign. But notice the last phrase, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, God's spoken the whole Bible. It's all by the voice of God, but there are places where he seems to stamp his authentication upon this, saying this is something you need to really pay attention to. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Matthew 24, 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <laughs> all the nations of the world, at this time the nations that have risen up against God, will see the sky split. And Jesus will return in all of his glory will be following him. And the Bible says they will mourn. Why? Because they thought they defeated him. Because they thought they were the victors. And now they look up and see from the sky coming this incredible king of kings coming. Number two, God exposes the weakness of his people. <clears throat> Letter A, God reminds his people of their frailty. We're weak. The problem is when we think we're strong. Take heed lest when you think you're strong, lest you fall. Verse 6, the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. Here's a conversation between God and Isaiah. And, and God says to Isaiah, cry. And Isaiah says, what do I cry? And God says, cry, all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. God told him to declare this often repeated theme, referring to the fragility of man compared to the awesome power of God. Now, this theme is repeated frequently in 1 Peter 1.24, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. And we out here in Colorado understand this perhaps a lot better than the Midwesterners do. Why? Because we understand what it means if you don't water your grass. You can have lush green grass unless your sprinkler fails to work. And then all of a sudden, that hot sun beating down upon it causes you to have a brown yard. Why? Because the grass quickly withers and fades. That's his description of mankind versus God. In Matthew 6.30, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? 
Luke 12, 28, If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? James 1, 10 and 11, But the rich, and that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. We're like grass. We fade away quickly, whereas God in his awesome power is eternal. Letter B, we are as grass compared to Almighty God. Verse 7, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. This is written with a, with a view to the Middle East where the sun scorches the ground in the summer. Following a spring of green grass and wildflowers, the sun soon withers them, leaving them brown and lifeless. Temperatures well over 100 degrees for days at a time in the Middle East. Such are the people. Their lives are like a vapor. Number three, God will return in power and great glory. Verse eight, once again, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Letter A, God promises to preserve his word forever. It's a stark contrast between the brief life of grass versus the eternal endurance of the word of God. Here's one of the great preservation verses in the Bible, reminding us that after inspiring His Word, God made provision to preserve it forever. The Word of the Lord shall stand forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower falleth away, but the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the Word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Letter B. The redeemed will lift their voices in praise when the Messiah returns. Verse 9, O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. By the way, if you like handle it all, it's fun reading this because all of a sudden you start seeing him pop up, the hallelujah chorus, and handles Messiah throughout this path, these passages here. Zion is the name God uses to identify with both Israel and Jerusalem. It's used interchangeably. God's people are encouraged to rejoice at the awesomeness and eternality of God and His Word. We're told that during the tribulation there will be a great harvest of souls as a result of the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. When the Messiah returns, all the saved will be directed to lift their voices and loudly declare to all the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And I asked the class this afternoon, I said, so since they weren't saved at the beginning of the tribulation, how did these 144,000 Jews get saved? Well, let me give you my supposition. Remember the two witnesses? as the two witnesses are boldly proclaiming the Word of God. 
I believe they have a great harvest of souls, and very likely many, if not most, of the 144,000 come to Christ as a result of the preaching of these two witnesses. Now, you don't want to mess those, those witnesses because they can, they can incinerate you. God gives them a special powers. But I believe they win this incredible host of the Lord, and then they go out around the world spreading the gospel. Let her see, the Lord will come in great power and bring his rewards with him. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Jesus' return will be in a full revelation of his deity. He'll be God. He's not going to hide it then. He's God. It'll be obvious. He will come in great power and strength. He will personally be responsible for ruling the world. He will almost immediately begin the work of building the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple. When he comes, he will bring his rewards with him for his servants who have faithfully served him. Now, I don't know the answer to this, and perhaps you do. Here we're told about the Lord at his second coming bringing his rewards with him. Well, we know that during the seven years tribulation on earth, Believers who were raptured, the church that was raptured, will be at the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. And that judgment seat of Christ will be where their works are, are judged, are, 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 are put through burning fires of purification to find out if they will last. Well, do we receive rewards then and then bring them with us? So if that's the case, then what are these rewards that Jesus is bringing? Or do we, are we told about, or do we see ribbons up there and the real rewards are down here? Or are these rewards that Jesus brings rewards for those who were saved during the tribulation after the rapture, but who lived godly lives and get rewarded then? I don't really know the answer to that, but God, Jesus is bringing rewards with him. Again, Revelation 22, 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, he says to give every man according as his work shall be. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Letter D. The king of the world will be a shepherd to his flock. The, 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 uh, the, uh, oh, what, what, what's, that, what's that word that describes two things that are not coherent with each other. They're, they're uh, what is it? Kind of like a paradox. On the one hand, you've got the king, the king of the world. On the other hand, you've got this lowly shepherd. And the two don't seem to jibe. But that's exactly what it's going to be under Jesus' reign. He's the king of the world, and he's going to be the good shepherd all at the same time. He will feed, verse number 11, he will feed his flock like a, flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Here's a reassuring picture of the Lord's countenance toward his people during the millennium. Though he will come in power and great glory and he will rule the earth with a rod of iron, still he will tenderly care for his own as would a good shepherd. I'm so grateful that God gave us the book of Revelation. If we did not have the book of Revelation, we would not have a clear understanding, a clear picture, a complete picture of who Jesus is. It's not until Revelation that we begin to understand of a God of judgment 
as well. The very God who went to the cross and died for us on the cross, who gave his life for mankind, is the very God who will judge the lost at the great white throne judgment, the Lamb. We hear of the wrath of the Lamb. The tribulation, the Lamb of God, will release his wrath here on the earth. And so we see a, a full picture. But what we understand is that wrath is not to his believers. That wrath is to the unsaved, to the wicked. That wrath is not for us. It, for us and for his people in the millennium, it will be like a relationship like a shepherd. Loving, ruling, guiding, protecting, feeding, uh, watching over. Number four, God is above all. Letter A, there's no God like our God. <laughs> None. Verse 12, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Here's what it's talking about. This is the hollow right here, the hollow of his hand. And it's referring to the oceans. Who, who's, who's measured the amount of water of the ocean with his hand? Can you imagine going to the ocean and, and starting to dip out the water and find out how much water is in the ocean? Well, God does. I'm thinking, oh, there's, there's about two and a half hollowfuls there. It's the ocean. And meted out heaven with a span. It's measured, measured the heaven with, with, with a span from here to here. And comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Of course, these are rhetorical questions, but they, their answers are very apparent. The Lord God of the universe has measured the oceans with his hand. He's determined the exact size of the heavens and figured out the particles of dust in the earth. And he knows exactly how much the mountains weigh. <laughs> God is all powerful. Letter B, man cannot instruct God in anything. Somebody mentioned this afternoon, but as we're reading through this, you kind of get a, a little sense of what God and Job were, were like in his, in, in, his, in his laying out here of man compared to uh, God. Verse 13, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Who taught God anything? Can you imagine God up in heaven saying, hmm, I never thought of that. It's not going to happen. We cannot teach God anything. He is the true, and I say this respectfully, know-it-all. He knows it all. He really does. There's nothing he does not know. God knows everything. And we cannot teach him anything. The comparison between God's infinite intelligence and man's is not even measurable. You cannot measure the difference between something finite and something infinite. Letter C. Even when men gather together in nations, they are still nothing compared to God. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. God gives them another analogy demonstrating the vast difference between his greatness and man's weakness. Would the nations join together with all their might, they would remain powerless against an almighty God. The isles are considered as nothing next to his power. <laughs> um, behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, 
um, are counted as the small dust of the balance. You see along the interstates, oftentimes there's little uh, pull-offs where trucks have to go and be weighed. These massive semi-trucks go to the weigh station and they find out how much the truck weighs. And the truck, this massive truck, rolls over this huge scale and it measures the, the, the thousands of pounds that that truck weighs. Well, imagine the wind comes up a little bit and there's nothing on the scale. The wind comes up and it blows some dust and it covers the scale with dust. Do you think the guy inside is going to see any measurable difference on the scale? It's not going to show. Just dust, which is the analogy he's talking about here. If the nations all gather together against me, they're just like dust on a scale. It doesn't even show. Letter D, man's attempts at a burnt offering for God would fall dismally short. Verse 16, and Lebanon, now think what Lebanon is famous for. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Here's what I think he's saying. Lebanon is famous for its wood, its lush forests. You take all the wood, all the, all the wood of Lebanon, and you take all the animals in the entire region, and you have this massive offering unto God, using all that wood and all the animals. It would be insufficient to make an appropriate burnt offering to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Letter E, the nations are as nothing before God. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. All the nations of the world, powerful as they seem, are as nothing before God. In fact, he counts them less than nothing. Number five, God is incomparable. Verse 18, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Letter A, God has nothing by which to be compared. When man tries to find something to which he can compare God, he comes up empty. There's nothing that can hold up to an honest comparison to God. So somebody comes up, well, tell me, what's God like? Hmm, well, you know, he's like, uh, um, what's God like? Uh, well, let me, uh, what can I compare him to? Nothing. You can't compare God to anything. And yet, isn't that what men do when they make false gods? They, in their minds, create an image of God. Let her be, they craft images out of wood and cover them with gold, but they remain lifeless. Verse 19. The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. The craftsmen make futile attempts to fashion resemblances of God. I'll tell you what, we'll make an image of God. We'll, we'll take this piece of wood, we'll carve it out, then we'll, we'll pour gold over it, and we'll call that God. Then they attach silver chains. I kind of thought this was funny. Why would they put silver chains on this idol? So they can attach the chains to the wall so the idol doesn't fall over. Because the idol is not strong enough to stand up on its own. 
The wind may come up. Somebody might nudge it and might fall over because the idol is not strong enough to take care of itself. Letter C, even the poor find ways to foolishly worship false gods. Verse 20, he that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Let's get a picture here real quick. We're talking about impoverished man. So this is a poor person. It's a poor person. He looks around. He can't afford to get an offering. So he goes out to his yard and he picks a tree out. He said, okay, there's a tree. So he goes over and has somebody carve that tree that's in his yard and makes his own little idol there in the yard that cannot move because it's a tree. <laughs> in Isaiah 2 and verse 8, their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that, with, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man, or the common man, boweth down. And the great man humbleth himself. Therefore, forgive them not. Number six, God is great. Man is weak. Are you getting the theme here, <laughs> what God's trying to tell us? Man is weak. He's like grass. God is all-powerful. Man fades away. God lasts forever. Man is ignorant. God is all-wise. Letter A, God asks if they honestly knew nothing about him and his creation. Verse 21, have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? To the foolish and ignorant who have turned to their false gods. The Lord asks if they have not heard the truth of God's involvement in the affairs of man. The story of creation is in the Bible. It's been chronicled in scriptures, as well as being handed down from generation to generation. One has but to look into the heavens to see the handiwork of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Letter B, God presides over the earth and the heavens, and man is but an insect. Verse 22, it is he that sitteth upon the, if you're, if you're following along, what's the next word? What, what is it? Circle. Notice that. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Isn't that interesting? The circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Hmm. A circle. Huh. Circle. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting how God dispels some of the myths of man like flat earth? Right here, it's a circle. Isn't that incredible? This verse begins by destroying the flat earth theory. God sits on the circle, the sphere of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth are tiny like grasshoppers in his sight. Comparatively, God has stretched out the heavens like a giant curtain and set them up as one a tent. Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even is eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. How could God send somebody to hell? They live way over there in the far parts of the world. How can God send them to hell? Here's why. 
is because even his eternal power and Godhead are understood, they're seen in creation. And as they respond to those, God reveals to them more light. It's incredible. God is a merciful God that is fair. Letter C. God will bring the high and the mighty to nothing. Verse 23, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Here are the great and the mighty among men. God brings them to nothing. Like, like seeds, they will not be planted and take root. They will wither at God's breath against them. And this describes the fulfillment during the tribulation of utter ruin and destruction. Letter D. God scoffs at man's idolatry. Verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? God scoffs at man's attempts to fashion him into an image of some sort. The lost world has bowed before likeness images since antiquity. Sadly, even Israel and Judah followed their wicked ways. And God here declared that there are no likenesses of him, nor any who are his equal. The law reads in Deuteronomy 5.8, Thou shalt not make thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Letter E. God challenges man to look to the heavens. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. God calls humanity to look to the heavens and consider their creator. God made them all. He even named them, named the heavenly bodies. It's interesting, God told Adam, Adam, name all the animals. He didn't say, name the stars, because God did that. His great power not only created them, but he keeps them in their perfect orbits. Never has one ever failed to remain consistent and dependable. Letter F. God questions Judah about their foolish thinking. Verse 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? In other words, you, why do you say... I can't see you. Why, why do you say that? Why do you act like I can't see you and you, you, you're, you're getting by without judgment? As Isaiah delivered these words, Judah was being chastened by the nation of Assyria. The northern tribes had long since fallen to Assyria's overwhelming power. As God's people looked to their almost certain destruction, many had decided that God had forsaken them and had hidden their eyes, hidden his eyes from their trials. God must not care for his people any longer, they said. But God asked them how they could even consider such foolish thoughts. Letter G. God asked Judah if they even knew their God. Verse 28. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. As God interrogated Job, here he asks Judah if they even knew their God. He is the everlasting God. He is Jehovah, 
the creator of the ends of the earth that never faints or even gets tired. His understanding is beyond man's reasoning. This God was still their God. They were being chastened or spanked by their God, but he had not forsaken them. Jeremiah 4.22, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. And then number seven, God is faithful. He's faithful. Letter A, God will one day restore the strength of his people. Verse 29, he giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. God is the giver of strength. He delights in being the strength of the weak. His nature of being strong for the weak has never changed. There will come a day in which he will once again be the strength of Israel and Judah. They will, by his power, rise to great power in the day of his millennial reign. It's interesting that Paul discovered this, 2 Corinthians. Paul discovered that when he was weak, then was God strong. When Paul went around thinking that he was strong, then God could not do his mighty works. When Paul confessed that, God, I'm, I'm weak, I need you, then God said, that's what I've been waiting for, for you to acknowledge your weakness so that I can be strong in your weakness. Psalm 29, 11, the Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And if you're familiar with the 40th chapter of Isaiah at all, you know where we're heading here. We're, we're going up the mountain now. We're getting ready to, to hit this incredible mountaintop verse. We're almost there. What's so interesting is the setting in which this verse is written. It's written to the people of Judah. During a time of them being oppressed, during a time of them being judged, and God gives this incredible mountaintop chapter with this beautiful verse we're about to read. And letter B, God wants to be the strength of anyone trusting in Him. He writes in verse 30 and 31, Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Concluding this chapter is one of the Bible's greatest promises. Judah was weak at the end of their lives as they were about to be ready to be given up in the face of impending destruction by Assyria. To them, God said that everyone grows weary, even the vitality of the youth. However, he promised to be the strength for those who choose to trust in him and to wait upon him to lead them and guide them. This promise was given to the people in Judah, but its application is for all who need his strength like you and like me. God wants his children to bring their needs to him, to trust in him, to wait for him to reveal his will. Psalm 103, verse 5, Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. And we've just begun. Chapter 40 is the beginning of, the, of the, the, the incredible passage of Isaiah, and so I'm excited to share it with you. Let's have a prayer, and we'll bring this part to a conclusion. Dear Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to study Isaiah chapter 40. And Lord, I'm so grateful for you adding this to the book of Isaiah. Lord, we who somewhat casually read through the book, we needed this breath of refreshment. 
I can't begin to imagine how important it was for those who actually received it. I pray, Lord, that you might help us to gain truths from tonight's study, and we'll thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.